Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we're talking about sleep deprivation and glymphatics with Vivek Jain, MD, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine here at GW and the director of the GW Center for Sleep Disorders. Dr. Jain is a graduate from the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in New Delhi, India. He did his residency in internal medicine and fellowship in pulmonology and critical care medicine at the University of Missouri Hospital and Clinics in Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Jain's research on various aspects of sleep disorders have been published in more than dozens of peer-reviewed scholarly journals and numerous books. He lectures nationally and internationally on the topics of obstructive sleep apnea and heart disease. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Vivek, or welcome back. Oh, thank you, Well, Thank you, Leigh, and thank you, Janet, for having me back. Absolutely. We are very glad to have you back. Sleep's such an important topic. And I think this topic is going to be extra interesting because I don't think most people are going to even know what it is. So maybe we'll start there. What is the glymphatic system and how is it changing sleep medicine? So glymphatics uh, is uh, is something that uh, was recently discovered. Uh, so that's why there's not much known about it. Uh, you know, we think about lymphatics, uh, which I guess most of the audience would be familiar with, which is kind of a drainage system all over a body that helps remove waste, whether it be infectious stuff, inflammatory stuff, cancer cells. And so we hear about lymph nodes getting big. We've never really understood that there's a similar system in the brain that will allow uh, removal of uh, of waste products. And uh, it was in 2012 that uh, researchers uh, discovered this uh, 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 this process happening inside the brain. So, so glymphatic is is a take on the lymphatic system, but the GL or the glee part comes from the glial cells that are involved in, in, in uh, helping remove this uh, waste product. So what essentially happens in a brain, which is you know, constantly active, is that the metabolism of each nerve cell produces you know, waste products, byproducts that if not removed in a timely manner, they'll start accumulating. And so, uh, and which makes sense, except that it hadn't been uh, you know, discovered. Uh, and and the, these glial cells, which are specialized neuronal cells, pump this uh, waste material that accumulates in the cells after metabolic activity into the uh, CSF or the cerebrospinal fluid and flush it out, so to say, out of the system uh, across a blood-brain barrier. So uh, it is important. And how is it changing sleep medicine? Uh, I think uh, it helps. uh, You know, we've known for years that uh, various forms of sleep disorders uh, and specifically, uh, you know, sleep deprivation or insufficient sleep uh, can cause various, uh, you know, uh, disorders or or health effects. One being, uh, uh, you know, memory issues. So we know that sleep is important for memory, and when one is sleep deprived, uh, it does affect memory. And so one can extrapolate that into the long term and say perhaps uh, insufficient sleep. Can can lead to say dementia, be a risk factor for dementia in the future. 
And this, so one of the waste products that accumulates uh, as a result of the normal day-to-day activity in all our brain cells is a protein called the beta amyloid. And, and, uh, and so uh, it's one of the many proteins along with something else called the tau proteins that needs to be removed from the brain cells uh, and not be allowed to stay there. And, and so normal sleep, good amount of sleep helps us do that. Uh, but if we don't flush it out and it uh, accumulates in the body, then it causes these depositions in the brain cells, which we know from other studies done in dementia, one of the causes or one of the you know, pathological biomarkers, so to say, of, of dementia or cognitive problems is the accumulation of things like the beta amyloid proteins and tau proteins inside the brain cells. So it's like a you know, an extension. So if I sleep well, I don't allow those bad proteins to accumulate uh, in the brain cells. But if I don't sleep well and they accumulate, that could be one of the reasons for development of dementia in the future. That is so important. And I think we've talked in our previous episode about how people often don't prioritize sleep. Um, and I hope that the lymphatic system will be maybe a real motivating factor for people to prioritize sleep because we are we're, we're not in a good position to be able to prevent or treat many of these cognitive disorders at this time. And if you could simply get more higher quality sleep to prevent it, that's something we can do. That is so true, uh, uh, you know, because once these proteins start accumulating, you're right, there is no turning back. Uh, there is no, you know, one of the, I guess the, uh, you know, problems with dementia treatment is we, uh, you know, we know that it's due to, uh, in most cases, due to the accumulation of these bad players, the proteins, but, you know, we don't know how to get rid of those proteins once they've accumulated in a very large amount. Mm-hmm. And and so you're right that, you know, it is almost like prevention is better than, you know, because we don't have a cure. Right. Right. Absolutely. Sleep and the brain, these two areas of study are just endlessly fascinating. So how do glymphatics relate to sleep deprivation? Yes, so uh, what what is, uh, you know, uh, what is kind of understood after we discovered uh, uh, the glymphatic system was that what pumps this, and it's like a pump, right? So all these, uh, you know, uh, just like a blood vessel. So something inside the brain is going to have this pump action to remove this waste material. And and so if one studies the physiology of sleep, so during deep sleep, uh, uh, you know, the cells in the brain uh, fired in a very synchronized manner. Uh, and and so uh, when they're firing in, in, a, in this uh, synchronized manner, they, they create a force, uh, which is thought to create these uh, the propulsion waves that then allows uh, that waste material to move through the intracellular fluid in the brain uh, and into something called the cerebrospinal fluid across the blood-brain barrier. And so that is that is the key, that this pumping action is required. And, and so is, you know, and people have also felt that the supine position, of course, you know, most humans don't sleep standing up. Uh, we do sometimes sleep sitting up, <laughs> you know, but that supine position also facilitates this this pumping action and the movement of this fluid, uh, removing the, the, the bad proteins. So just a quick clarification for those in our audience that are not familiar with the supine position. What does that mean? Sleeping on the back or sleep, sleeping in the flat position. You can be sleeping on the sides. You can be on the back. You can be prone, like sleeping on your stomach. But the idea is that you're not upright. You are horizontal. 
that makes sense. You're, the way it's not trying to to force it in some sort of direction against the flow of gravity. Right, right. I mean, that might be the simplest explanation, but uh, yeah, that could be. You're right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, glymphatics is really important for the brain. Sleep is really important for the brain. So how does all of this come together and how does sleep deprivation affect mood? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, you know, certainly, uh, again, people have only recently started realizing the connection between good sleep and other mental and also physical uh, health issues. Uh, you know, uh, many, very, you know, many years ago and very early on, uh, almost 40, 50 years ago, one of the antidepressants that was used is to make the patient sleep deprived. So believe it or not, mm-hmm. if somebody has... Uh, you know, like a bipolar disorder or a manic depressive disorder, and uh, uh, and the treatment if they come into the clinic uh, uh, with with like severe depression, the treatment offered was don't let that person sleep, and they will shift that spectrum from being depressed to being manic. Now, <laughs> uh, now a lot of people who have bipolar disorder or major depression or major, you know, uh, like manic depressive disorder are not usually bipolar. They could just be unipolar depressed. In that situation, um, you know, uh, uh, obviously, you know, the connection between sleep and, uh, and uh, you know, treatment of depression is not that clear. Um, in fact, the opposite is true, that if one is sleep deprived, it can actually lead to symptoms like fatigue and, and irritability, things that can be, uh, uh, misdiagnosed as uh, 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 depression or exacerbation of depression. So it's almost like uh, if I don't have the tendency to become manic, uh, then and I'm just depressed, or even other mood disorders, including things like anxiety or uh, you know schizophrenia, they, they tend to get worse with with sleep deprivation. So we know that that uh, relationship is more in the direction of sleep deprivation causing worsening of the mood issues rather than sleep depression being used as a treatment for uh, sleep deprivation being used as a treatment for depression and causing uh, manic episodes. Mm -hmm. So what else do we need to know about sleep deprivation and its consequences on health? So, you know, for the audience, I think, uh, uh, you know, we've talked obviously about uh, the connection between sleep deprivation and and future risk for dementia. Uh, uh, there are other aspects, you know, so the independent effects of sleep deprivation on even uh, things like weight gain and obesity. So, uh, you know, there were lots of studies were done, uh, especially in, in Belgium and also from the University of Chicago, uh, that very specifically looked at the relationship between, uh, uh, you know, what happens when a community uh, and an individual is sleep deprived. Uh, and they very clearly found that even... Uh, uh, both at the individual level and at the community level, if one is not getting enough uh, amount of sleep, they're uh, more likely to gain weight or also more likely to find it harder to lose weight. So if somebody comes, to say, to the weight loss clinic and, and is having, having a hard time following a good diet, doing some exercise, but not getting enough sleep, they will find it harder to lose weight. Uh, the, the same group of researchers many years ago also found the relationship between uh, sleep deprivation and and development of diabetes or insulin resistance. And that was fascinating to us because, uh, uh, you know, in their initial experimental paradigm, what they found was that even you take a healthy sleeper, somebody who, 
you know, uh, it says that they sleep eight hours or more um, and follow regular schedules. Uh, they have no problems staying awake during the daytime. They are healthy, normal sleepers. And then you collect these individuals, uh, both men and women, and you say, you know what, I'm going to divide you into two groups. And uh, one group, I'm going to make you sleep only four hours a night for five nights. And the other group can continue sleeping just like they normally sleep. And even after five nights of sleep deprivation, what we call as an acute sleep deprivation experimental model, these five, 100% of these individuals who were in that sleep deprivation group compared to the people who were allowed to sleep normally developed signs of insulin resistance uh, and, and what we call as diabetes uh, within five nights of sleep deprivation. Uh, and then, of course, they were recovered uh, uh, and allowed to sleep more for five nights following the sleep deprivation. And, and fortunately, obviously, they all recovered. Uh, but this was the first idea that, my God, uh, sleep deprivation that we all know we all are guilty of from time to time mm-hmm. can have acute effects, not just chronic effects. You know, in, in, a, in, a, in a general population, acute sleep deprivation is rare. You know, somebody's on call, somebody's a police officer, somebody's a firefighter, somebody's on duty shift, for six hours. shift worker. Shift workers, but mm-hmm. most of us get what we call as an opportunity to to um, recover sleep. As as I as I say, you know, like I, I, one night I'm sleep deprived. Obviously, we know we are sleepy the following day, and we recover sleep. Most of us can. Now, what is the other uh, interesting finding amongst uh, you know after doing research is that there is this more common condition called chronic partial sleep deprivation, in which we never ever ever recover from a sleep debt. So what is a sleep debt? So if, say, you know, most people say it requires seven to eight hours of sleep, and just for the audience, I think one way of looking at uh, understanding how much sleep one needs is uh, in a very simplistic way to say, you know, when if I'm on vacation and I get X amount of sleep, I feel good. What is that X amount of sleep? You know, because most of us during our day-to-day lives are, are a very fatigued and sleepy society mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, we're not really – you know, we have many things that we think are causing a fatigue and, and sleepiness, but uh, vacation is the right time to understand what my own specific individual sleep needs are. So uh, if I meet those sleep needs on a regular basis, which for most individuals is seven to eight hours per night, uh, I'll be healthy for most part. Now, if I, for whatever reason, got, say, six hours of sleep tonight, that means one or, say, one and a half hours less than what I needed tonight for whatever reason, then the recovery models have shown that I have to recover that deficit within the next two nights. So if I have a two-hour sleep deficit tonight for whatever reason, I should sleep maybe nine hours on the two following nights or 10 hours and eight hours on the two subsequent nights to recover from that sleep debt right away. What so we most- can't store it all up for the weekend is what you're telling us? Absolutely. <laughs> not. And that's what most of us do is that we store it up for the weekend, that you know, we sleep extra on the weekends to make up, but that model doesn't work. And that's why the more real-life situation is chronic partial sleep deprivation. So there's this so-called the tale of two epidemics where we've known that over the past 20 years, as a society, we have, or even over 30 years, as a society, we've become more sleep-deprived, chronically sleep-deprived, not just acutely, and we are becoming bigger. And all these chronic disease states are are flaring uh, up, uh, you know, uh, including metabolic disorders, uh, diabetes, heart disease, uh, 
And and all of these now have been individually linked to sleep deprivation in one way or the other. Cancer is another thing which has now been linked to to uh, chronic partial sleep deprivation. Uh, uh, you know, there are, uh, there's a very interesting, uh, you know, group of researchers looking at the immune system and sleep deprivation. And so, you know, we all talk about how autoimmune diseases, lupus, rheumato- you know, rheumatological diseases are starting to increase. And the question really is, why is that? Uh, is it just, you know, maybe environmental uh, or maybe intrinsic to our body physiology? And so some some group of researchers are st- showing the connection between inflammation and, and sleep deprivation, Uh also, a very simple example, and which we all should be aware of. For example, I go get a flu shot, right? And for whatever reason, after getting the flu shot, I do not sleep well that night because I have work to do or something to catch up with, and I get less than my requisite amount of sleep. Research has clearly shown that my immune response to that flu shot and generating antibodies is going to be much, much less if I do not get good sleep after getting a vaccination. That really puts it in perspective. There's so many important things that you need sleep for, not the least of which is disease prevention, but it's that's in my mind, that's health promotion, right? We're, we're trying to um, allow the body to educate its own immune system. So if it is exposed to a disease, it will not succumb to it. Right. Right. Uh, and so, you know, sleep is like our uh, uh, fifth vital sign in a way, you know, <laughs> we need it. I love that. So obviously there's a lot of different health outcomes, negative health outcomes from sleep deprivation. What role, if any, does glymphatics play in that? Or do we not know yet? We do not know yet. The only big place where we do know for sure is the uh, development of dementia in a sleep deprived individual. So that's, you know, both animal experiments and some human studies are showing the clear relationship between accumulation of these beta amyloid proteins, star proteins, and and risk for cognitive uh, dysfunction. And obviously, you can extrapolate that to dementia uh, in, in sleep-deprived individuals. Uh, it's very difficult to do retrospective studies if somebody's already developed mm-hmm. dementia or cognitive dysfunction. How far back do we go in life and say, you know, how much sleep were you getting 30 years ago when you were 15 years old, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ooh, that would be the the best study if we could follow people, get all information about sleep, diet, all their exposures, have the uh, the sort of ultimate study. We could possibly figure out some of these more complex diseases like dementia that we really haven't done very well with studying. I think one place where this is going to probably become easier to do if if privacy rules and laws can be regulated, and just my personal opinion. So to the audience, I don't want you to go out there and say, oh my God, what is Dr. Jen talking about? But you know, we, with all these smart watches and yeah. all these wearables, we are collecting so much data on patients' mm-hmm. parents. You know, and if you can remove the identifiers from each individual data point and just collect an information on saying, hey, you know, you know, so young kids are wearing wearables, adults are wearing wearables, same individual is wearing a wearable. All this data is available for years and years and years, potentially now and into the future. If one can just say, you know, I want my data from my wearable to become a part of a medical record, hmm. I mean, it'll be a great study. Yeah. I mean, I had a simple, uh, you know, one of the wearables recently uh, Patients bring this to us nowadays, you know, and we, we, there's no way to make it a part of the medical record. It's just sad. Yet. There's no way yet. No way yet. Correct. Let's keep our fingers crossed, everybody. 
So how do you increase glymphatic flow? Get more sleep. Short answer. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. And sleep, sleep, sleep position. You know, don't, don't have your, you know, again, most people sleep, uh, you know, like flat, you know, or semi elevated with the head up, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's the sleep, uh, you know, again, going back to experiments done by, you know, association between sleep and memory. It's not just the type of sleep like REM versus non-REM, um, you know, just sleep uh, itself has been shown to have a very positive effect on on recall and memory. Uh, and, and so one doesn't have to really say, oh, I don't have deep sleep or REM sleep. I don't dream. Maybe I don't get enough good sleep. Not true. Just any sleep. So give us, give us um, your top three or four sleep hygiene tips for patients and and also for clinicians to share with their patients you know uh be cognizant of the need for sleep uh, you know consider it to be an important as lay pointed out a, a preventive health measure not just diet and exercise uh, but uh, but emphasize uh, uh, just the need for sleep you know uh, mm-hmm. and a simple questionnaire like you know um, I, 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 you know how much sleep do you get during the weekdays how much sleep do you get on the weekends are your you know are your routines constant uh, are they variable um, because it's not just the amount of sleep but that amount of sleep according to a certain fixed or a semi-fixed schedule is more important uh, there's some concept called social jet lag where Again, most of us are guilty of this in the modern society where we sleep from a certain time to a certain time during the weekdays and a different time to a different time on the weekends. And every hour difference between the weekdays and the weekends has an independent effect on on uh, health, cardiovascular health, uh, independent of the amount of sleep. So sleep mm. tips would be get adequate amounts of sleep according to a more or less uh, fixed uh, schedule uh, uh, Three would be, uh, you know, if you do end up l- losing sleep for whatever reason one night, then make up for that sleep within the next uh, two nights and don't wait till the weekend. Um, other effects of, uh, you know, s- you know, like, for example, uh, noisy environment, lighted environments on lymphatic mm-hmm. flow is, is uh, obviously a hot area of research. Like if I read in bed and then take eight hours of sleep is my lymphatic flow the same as as if i was sleeping in a darker environment uh, that is unknown at present but it kind of makes sense to most of us that our sleep quality is not as good uh if we've exposed ourselves to light in bed you know like electronics or or, or kindles mm-hmm. and ipads so uh, and how about eating at night Eating at night uh, within two hours of bedtime is is uh, is not again a good idea for most of us uh, uh, because it does disturb sleep uh, because food sits in the stomach and doesn't get emptied out into the intestines. Uh, so cool, quiet, dark bedroom environment. Uh, you know, not going from the computer to the bedroom. You know, maybe just relaxing, giving some winding down time before bedtime. Uh, seven to eight hours of sleep for most of us. Uh, you know, according to a fixed schedule. Again, you know, alcohol disrupts sleep, nicotine disrupts sleep, uh, caffeine close to bedtime disrupts sleep in most people. You know, so all these things would be good sleep habits. And, you know, it will, is, you know, definitely improve lymphatic flow and theoretically prevent dementia in the future. 
And what's your opinion on having a TV in the bedroom? Again, uh, if it's used as a uh, as a relaxing agent or a distracting agent, uh, it's a different story. Uh, most of us don't use it for that reason. In fact, we get stimulated by that light and the noise and the content that we watch. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, very few people I've come come across, <laughs> at least in the clinic, will say, "Oh, I use it as a source of white noise." I, have, <sighs> you know, and and uh, it's not true. Most of us are actually catching up on, you know, because you've never had a chance to catch up. And so laying down in bed and catching up on the news and catching up on, uh, you know, programs that we've missed or recorded on the DVR. So we are not relaxed watching that TV, most of us, you know, so it's definitely not a good thing to have. Well, that is good to know. And I know we aren't all always perfect, but it seems like most of these things are small little tweaks that we can make to to improve. And like you're saying, even if you don't get a great night's sleep one night, well, then you have the next two nights to make up for it. So those next two nights, you really have to prioritize not watching the TV in bed, giving yourself the time to wind down, avoiding alcohol and caffeine, those type of things. Exactly. And, uh, and, you know, just, just start with one low hanging fruit and then develop that into a good habit and then start developing a second habit which becomes part of the nature and then it, that's uh, how we get to the to the end of the journey i love it so uh, what do you see coming down the pipeline in terms of research what what are you excited about hearing about in the future i think again uh, you know uh, the question about what improves glymphatic flow i mean are there going to be medications out there in the future you know mm. which we i again you know is it going to be a substitute for sleep so we know that sleep causes glymphatic flow and therefore the removal of all the bad proteins and the bad players and so if somebody says you know what i don't have the opportunity to sleep but i don't want to develop dementia in the future so what choice do i have here you know uh is there going to be something really you know, powerful, you know, obviously, you know, people, I, I don't want the audience to take a message from here and say, listen, okay, doc, give me a sleeping pill. Let me just get knocked out. And even if I get knocked out for six hours, I'll have enough glymphatic flow to, <laughs> mm. you know, that's not true. Again, nobody knows, but theoretically speaking, we know that none of the sleep aids that we use currently cause what we call as deep sleep or REM sleep. In fact, most of them deprive us of what we call as a real sleep. So natural sleep is is the best. And, uh, you know, how can we use a pharmaceutical agent in the future to replicate natural sleep? Uh, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe coming down the pipeline. Uh, uh, it's not there yet. But something that could certainly be interesting. It it makes you wonder that you know, the complexity of sleep, is it possible to replace it? Like perhaps you could have a pill that would help with lymphatic flow, but it wouldn't necessarily get all the other elements of sleep. That's a great point, Leigh. You're absolutely right. And so... Uh... You, you know, it's, it's a complicated process. You know, it's not just uh, one thing leading to another. And, uh, you know, what other players get left behind is what we don't know. Right, exactly. Well, there's certainly going to be more for us to talk about. Uh, and when there is more research out there, we'd love to have you back again. Uh, but that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Vivek. Oh, no, thanks again for having me. And uh, uh, I'll be delighted to come back again. Thanks again. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. 
And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.